The Old Pilot's Plain Tales Landshut In the 1970s, Germany was in the grip of a terrorist nightmare, led by a far-left militant group known as the Red Army Faction, or the Bader-Meinhof Gang. Its origins could be traced back to a student protest movement of the late 1960s, when the maturing baby boomer generation of Germany began to experiment with their newly found youth identity. They felt alienated from their parents' wartime generation, particularly on the subjects of racism, women's liberation and anti-imperialism. There was anger amongst many who believed that the denazification of Germany had been a failure. They saw former Nazis and no Nazi sympathizers still holding powerful positions in the country. It was in this hotbed of unrest that a new breed of terrorist was born. Young, middle class, well educated and moneyed, they found an identity in the writings of Mao Zedong, Marx, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara and the like. The most radical formed groups who engaged in bombings, assassinations, kidnappings, bank robberies and shootouts with police over the course of three decades. Trained and aided by the PLO and the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, their activities came to a head in late 1977, a national crisis known as the German Autumn. The head of the Dresden Bank had been shot and killed. Then a former SS officer, Hans Martin Schleyer, one of the most powerful industrialists in West Germany, was abducted in a violent kidnapping, which left his driver and three policemen dead. Then in October, the crew and passengers of Lufthansa Flight 181 became involved. The flight was on an early series of the Boeing 737 which was operating between Palma on Mallorca and Frankfurt. On board were two pilots, three cabin crew and 86 passengers and their aircraft was named Landshut after the beautiful Bavarian city of the same name. They took off at 11 in the morning on the 13th of October 1977, and it was just another day in the life of the crew, until, that is, they approached Marseille. It was then that two Palestinian men, Zahir Youssef Akash and Wabel Haab, stood up and calmly walked towards the flight deck. Pushing the door open, they drew handguns and went berserk, screaming at the top of their voices. They yanked the first officer from his seat and dragged him out of the cockpit and put a gun to the captain's head. In the rear of the aircraft, two female hijackers, also armed, subdued the passengers and forced them and the cabin crew into the rear of the fuselage. What was supposed to be a pleasant flight lasting a few hours was about to become a five-day nightmare. 
With the aircraft under their control, Akash stormed up and down the aeroplane, waving his gun around, threatening the passengers and hurling abuse at everyone. He shouted loudly that he was Captain Marta Mahmud and he would shoot anyone who disobeyed his orders. All the men were ordered from their seats and searched for weapons and then they went through all the hand luggage, scattering the contents around. Akash terrified everyone, particularly the women and children, as he would suddenly scream at people and hit them hard on the head or in the face, waving his gun with an expression of hatred and anger. The passengers thought him mentally unbalanced as he became more and more hysterical, repeatedly losing his temper over nothing. Everyone feared for their lives. On the flight deck, Captain Jürgen Schumann was told to fly his aircraft to Larnica in Cyprus, but he explained that he didn't have enough fuel for such a long flight and they would have to refuel in Rome first. The hijackers agreed, and the aircraft changed course. Following the kidnapping of the industrialist Hans Schleyer, the Red Army faction in Germany had begun making demands. In a stroke of luck, following the bombing of a US Army base in Frankfurt in 1972 that killed an army officer and wounded 13 others, the German police had a tip-off that led them to a small bomb factory. Andreas Bader was one of those that they arrested, and now the Bader-Meinhof gang of terrorists that bore his name wanted his release, along with ten others, two Palestinians held in Turkey, and a ransom of 15 million US dollars. Four hours later, Schumann landed his aircraft at Rome's Leonardo da Vinci airport, where it was immediately surrounded by Italian troops and armoured vehicles. Now Akash took control of the radio and repeated the Red Army faction's demands for the release of prisoners and the money. Chillingly, he concluded by telling the Italians that all demands must be met by 8 o'clock next morning, or the aircraft and everyone inside it would be blown up. The West German interior minister was in contact with the Italian authorities and he urged them to shoot out the aircraft's tyres so that it would be grounded there. The Italians refused, fearing that the hijackers would carry out their threat, leaving the blood on their hands. Instead, they refuelled the aircraft and let it depart unscathed, bound for Cyprus. Three hours later, after another awful flight for the passengers, the Landshut 737 arrived in Larnica. Here the Cypriot authorities had arranged for a representative of the Palestine Liberation Organization to talk to Akash over the radio. He tried to persuade him to release the hostages, but this only provoked a furious response from Akash, who started screaming at him over the radio in Arabic, until the PLO man just gave up and left. The Cypriots, as keen to get rid of the aircraft as the Italians were, refuelled it ready for departure. Captain Schumann was told to arrange a flight to Beirut, but... 
They said that the airport was closed and the runway had been blocked to prevent them from landing. Akash just told him to get airborne and they would go to Damascus instead. It was nearly 11 o'clock at night and wearily Schumann took off again, heading southeast across the Mediterranean Sea towards the Middle East. Again they asked Beirut to take them, but the answer was still no, and then Damascus refused them landing permission as well. They tried Baghdad and Kuwait airports, but they were also closed to them, so they set course for the island of Bahrain, over a thousand miles from Cyprus. A passing Qantas airliner advised them that Bahrain airport was closed, but after travelling such a distance they were desperately short of fuel. Captain Schumann told his controller that he had nowhere else to go, and despite being told again that the airport was closed, he was suddenly given the frequency of the instrument landing system, and he made an approach. At nearly two in the morning, and with only a few minutes of fuel left, Landshut finally touched down and was immediately surrounded by troops. Akash argued with the Bahrainian military and told them that unless they withdrew, he would murder the first officer, Yugen Vaitor. After a standoff, Akash gave them a five-minute deadline and stood with his gun to Vaitor's head. The minutes ticked by and the poor man must have wondered if he was about to breathe his last when the troops moved away and refueling trucks appeared. After taking on some fuel, Captain Schumann was again ordered to get airborne, this time bound for Dubai. As they approached Dubai, they were again refused landing permission, and as they overflew in the early morning light, they could see that the runway was blocked with trucks and fire engines. Circling overhead, Schumann pleaded for permission to land, as they had no fuel to go any further. Eventually the vehicles were moved and he got safely down onto the runway. It was 5.40 in the morning of the 14th of October. As they sat on the ground in Dubai, the conditions on the aircraft were appalling. The passengers had been forbidden from using the toilets. There was little water and no food, and when the auxiliary power unit failed, the air conditioning went with it. The temperature soon became horrendous, climbing to over 60 degrees centigrade, and the passengers were forced to strip to their underwear because of the heat. Dubai finally agreed to supply some food and water, remove the rubbish and service the toilet tanks. While this was going on, Captain Schumann managed to communicate the number of hijackers, saying that there were two men and two women. Then, in an awful blunder, Dubai's Minister of Defence revealed this to the press, and the hijackers got wind of the information. A cash went mad, threatening to kill Schumann, and for a while his life hung in the balance. In the meantime, the German anti-terrorist team, GSG-9, formed after the disastrous attempt to free hostages taken during the 1970 German Olympics, with British SAS assistance, were being positioned at Dubai. But before they could take any action, 
the aircraft was refuelled and Captain Schumann was forced to depart. They had been in Dubai for nearly two days, but now they were off again, this time to Salala in Oman. The authorities in Oman refused landing clearance, so now Akash ordered the Landshut on towards Aden International Airport in Yemen, near the mouth of the Red Sea. Aden also refused to allow them in and had blocked both runways to prevent a landing. Out of options, after another flight of more than a thousand miles, Akash ordered him to land on a totally unsuitable sand strip beside the main runways. Completely exhausted in a marvellous feat of skill, Captain Schumann got Landshut down, and they bounced and jolted their way safely to a halt in a cloud of sand and dust. Aden authorities wanted rid of the aircraft, and Schumann convinced the hijackers that they should let him inspect the undercarriage and engines for damage and plead for fuel from the Yemeni authorities in the tower. This took him some time, and when he returned, Akash went berserk, accusing him of betrayal and waving his gun at the cool-headed German pilot. Before he could explain, Captain Jürgen Schumann was forced to kneel, and Akash shot him in the face at point-blank range, killing him instantly. Afraid that the Yemenis might now decide to storm the aircraft, as soon as it was refueled, Akash dragged First Officer Vito back onto the flight deck and forced him to take off immediately. Despite having had no sleep for four days, Jürgen Vito dragged his badly damaged 737 off the runway at Aden and was ordered to head down into Africa, bound for Mogadishu in Somalia. He had little information to go by. The airport was right on the edge of his only map of the area. He convinced the hijackers that their only chance was to land unseen, so he turned the aircraft lights out and flew at a non-standard level where he didn't expect other aircraft to be. Unbeknown to him, the GSG-9 unit that was trying to save them was following in another Lufthansa aircraft a little way behind. On board Landshut, the passengers were agitated and very frightened. After their captain's appalling murder, they were convinced that they would die in some way or another. Little did they know that the German Chancellor, Helmut Schmidt, had spoken with the President of Somalia and got permission to attempt to storm the aircraft. Help wasn't far away. First Officer Vitor did a good job landing his tired and damaged aircraft at Mogadishu, and whilst they were positioned in a remote part of the airfield, GSG-9's aircraft touched down and was kept out of sight. Akash told the First Officer that his job was done and he was free to go, but he chose to remain on board with his crew and passengers. The dead captain's body was thrown down onto the tarmac and protracted negotiations started between Akash and trained negotiators in the tower, whilst the assault was planned and practised in every detail. 
On Landshut, the terrorists planted explosives and drenched the passengers with alcohol in preparation for the aircraft's destruction. As darkness fell on the fifth day of the hijack, snipers moved into position and prepared to carry out Operation Führersalber, Fire Magic, their very first live operation. At midnight, the rescue began as a recce team with image intensifiers crept up to the aircraft. When they discovered that a cache was with Harb in the cockpit, the assault team swung into action. They assembled at the rear of the aircraft a blind spot and then moved stealthily forwards, using black ladders to gain access to the wings and doors. At 2 a.m., the assault began. Somali troops were ordered to start a bonfire in front of Landshut, which drew the attention of the two men in the cockpit. Then the British SAS special forces threw flashbangs, stun grenades, a brand new piece of equipment at the time, and the GSG-9 team stormed through doors and escape hatches. One of the women terrorists ran to the rear with a gun and was cut down immediately by automatic fire. As a passenger described, I saw the doors open and a man appears. His face was painted black and he starts shouting in German, We're here to rescue you. Get down. Disorientated and confused by the stun grenades, Wapil Harb staggered out of the cockpit and collided with the other terrorist woman as she ran for her life. Hub was hit by a burst of rapid automatic fire, some twelve bullets entering his body, and he died on the spot. Then a cash came out of the cockpit with two hand grenades. He was immediately shot dead, but the grenades rolled free under the first-class seats where they exploded, luckily not doing a lot of damage. The final woman terrorist opened fire from the toilet where she was hiding, and a GSG-9 man returned fire, hitting her in the chest. She screamed and surrendered. It had taken just five minutes, and it was over. A radio message was sent to Chancellor Schmidt in Bonn. Four opponents down, hostages free. Four hostages slightly wounded, one commando slightly wounded. After 110 hours of captivity, being terrorised by gun-crazed killers, forced to live through hell, the passengers and crew were deeply traumatised, and there were medical teams and psychologists on hand to start their recovery, which, for some, would take weeks, months, even years. When news of the successful rescue became public, several imprisoned members of the Bader-Meinhof gang, including Andreas Bader, committed suicide, but Hans Schleyer, who had been kidnapped, was murdered and left in the trunk of a car. Jürgen Schumann, the murdered captain, Jürgen Vitor, his first officer, and one of the cabin crew, Gabrielle Dillmann, who was much praised by the passengers and dubbed the Angel of Mogadishu, were all awarded the German Federal Cross of Merit. Although Vitor returned his in protest when in 2008, terrorist Christian Klar 
was released from prison on probation. About two months after the hijack, Jürgen Vitor went back to flying and by coincidence, the first aircraft he would take airborne was Landshut. Following his remarkable five days of survival during the hijacking, Lufthansa credited him with 104 hours of overtime. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcaster of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.